It's time to rethink everything, to redo the rulebook, to explore smarter ways to work and rediscover what's possible. It's time for a fresh take on how technology and creativity are changing the way work gets done. I'm Barry Ross, and this is The Big Rethink. Today's episode discusses AI and the military supply chain and logistics. Our guest, Oliver Hedgepeth, professor of logistics at the American Military University Online. He is the first ever recipient of the Reverse Logistics Education Award from the American Public University System. Additionally, he's owned his own trucking company, as well as being a founding director of the Army's AI Center for Logistics since 1985. Oliver, welcome to the show. Hey, Barry, thank you very much for inviting me here. This is uh, an interesting topic, what's happening in the civilian and military world, and looking forward to having a conversation with you. Yeah, I mean, this is pretty exciting stuff. I mean, the questions are going to be kind of dense, and I apologize beforehand, but uh, I think it's going to be really exciting as we get into the details. So let's start from the beginning. How did your experience owning your own trucking company lead you to become a program director, a professor teaching logistics, government contracting, and acquisition? <laughs> well, that's an interesting question, the way you placed it. Uh, I did have a trucking company in, in the 80s, and I, I tell you what, it was exciting. My, I was running uh, loads of uh, groceries from mainly Fort Lee, Virginia, the military, to other military bases around the state and other states. Um, had nine trucks. It was interesting. And uh, unfortunately, uh, went broke because of 2008, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and well, the, the, the fuel prices doubled. And, and that's when I realized that you have a contract with the government and you say, hey, fuel prices doubled. Let's redo the contract. And you know how the government is. They'll say, well, your contract is for two years and we will be glad to change it in two years. And mm. for small trucking companies, it's like, oh, golly. Yeah. <laughs> now, as far as teaching, I was a teacher before. And actually, owning a trucking company was, I think, my third career. I started out in the government a uh, long time ago working for a defense intelligence agency. Wow. And then went to the Army and uh, did uh, analysis on logistics and things. But uh, my teaching started oh, about 30 years ago. I got a... PhD from Old Dominion University, and, and they said, hey, you're going to get this PhD? You're going to teach a class. <laughs> and I said, okay, what? It says logistics, and it's like, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> so you, 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 you start it by, uh, I said, give me, a, give, me a, give me some lessons on it. And they said, here's a CD. You can look at this. <laughs> and it lasted about 15 minutes on how to teach, and it's like, oh, golly. So it's been fun, and uh, owning a trucking company did get me involved in, I know what truckers are like. Yeah. And I belong to the Trucking Association, and I get, I get ground-up information that a lot of professors don't get. It does help my teaching, but the teaching was always there, and I did the trucking company with my daughter, uh, oh. who was a trucker. I've got a daughter who's like five foot nothing and skinny <laughs> as everything. And to see her climb up into that 18-wheeler cab, you got to be kidding. And you don't mess with her because she, she is a trucker from Alaska. Oh. Okay? You don't mess with women or men in Alaska, especially truck drivers. And they taught me a great deal. So it, did, it gave me a hands-on experience. I can talk to the best of my students who are military and civilian who know about trucking because I've been there. 
Yeah. And, you know, I, 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 what, what, the more I do these shows and the more, you know, I talk to our listeners and guests like you, you know, it's every day you learn something new and your history plays a big part of what your, I think your career, you know, finally, you know, looks like. And to me, I think, you know, when I think about trucking and logistics, they're almost the same thing. And so now we flash forward, you know, years later. And so when you and I, or, you know, when I talk about supply chain with people internal in my company, when we talk about capacity planning, right? We talk about demand, order, warehouse acquisition, you know, management, things like forward and reverse logistics. You know, what are the differences between civilian and military logistics for supply chain support? <laughs> now, that is a great question. I want everybody to think about that. My students, I do teach about 120 students every week. Uh, I teach a class that goes, teach courses that go eight weeks long. And I probably teach, I'd say, around 500 to 600 military wow. a year. Okay, I am active in that. I really love it. And they're military, and they're ones who are driving a truck, or they're enlisted doing something else, or they're, they're the maintenance. And they want to know about logistics, or they're working in a warehouse. And they realize the warehouse here, say at Fort Lee, is not the same as the warehouse at Walmart. Mm. There are differences. But let, let me start, start off with the main thing about military logistics. Logistics really originated with the military. They started it, okay? They really started. Civilians came later in terms of really the structure of it. But soldiers' mission is combat. They're supposed to support and arms control and ammunition and stuff like that. And so their job is to, um, well, go to war, all right? And they need weapons to go to war and food and things and clothing. Civilian logistics is uh, different. Mm. They're, dis they're, they're involved in sales and promotions. The military logistics side is not really involved in sales and promotions. There's a whole different way of thinking, and that's something that military logistics people need to think about. When they leave 20 years of military logistics in a warehouse, they're going to go to a civilian warehouse and realize their job is not at the warehouse door where the truck comes. Mm. It goes all the way to a little island, maybe where vanilla is made, and there's been a storm on that island, and all of a sudden, there's a piece of their product that's not going to be there for four years because the island was crushed in a storm. Wow. Or they may realize what's happening now. This pandemic has stopped manufacturing in China. And people are realizing for the first time, my warehouse is empty and my shelves are empty uh, in the civilian and military world because the product's not being made in China. Mm. You know, we got about, you know, a good chunk of our stuff is made overseas. So logistics really is interesting between military and and civilian. The military is focused. It's, it's kind of close in. Here's what it is. They do have a supply chain. Yes, they know things go from one part of the country to another. There are parts that come from one thing to another. But in the civilian side, um, you've got to really pay attention. Otherwise, uh, you lose your job. Mm. Okay? I've talked to military people. They screwed up. I've got, I've got pictures of a driver, military driver, turning over an 18-wheeler several times. Okay, and he gets back up, and the guy said, and the boss says, "Okay, you're gonna put in a warehouse, get out of the wheel," but he doesn't lose his job. Okay, now a civilian rolls rolls an 18 wheeler two or three times, you're not gonna be rolling that driving that truck again. All right, there are differences in how your lot your your job is controlled, but it is interesting. They are different but the same, and you need to understand 
for the military, they need to understand there is a linkage in that supply chain. It goes all the way back to places in China and Mexico and Canada where you get parts. You know, they don't know that, uh, maybe, maybe don't know that the paper label you put on a bottle of water, it had to come out of uh, Mexico or it had to come out of Canada. And if there's a blockage because of the pandemic, you're not getting the label to put on a bottle of water. These things are happening, and the military doesn't see a lot of that, okay? But the military side is really exciting how they do, and they do focus. Oh, my God, they study the basics of logistics. They are the best in learning logistics. They really are. I think they learn logistics better than the civilians. But like I said, there's a difference when you cross that line into the civilian world. Yeah, I think that's that, that's really helpful, that distinction, because to me, when I think about logistics, you know, when I think about our military infrastructure, I think there's just— to me, and I'm probably stereotyping this, the efficiency that probably follows what, you know, uh, someone would do in your field as opposed to what happens in the civilian life. But, you know, let's, let's go back even further. So since your involvement, you know, starting in 1985 with AI and logistics, like how would you say AI has changed supply change management? AI, I'm glad you started that because um, I was in charge of the Army's first AI center for logistics. There were seven AI centers developed by General Thurman back then. And uh, I was at Fort Lee, Virginia. We ran it for five years. And it was interesting to try to see how we developed AI. Uh, we basically did what we were doing back in the 60s and 70s of taking a, a field manual, how to maintain an Army tank. Okay, and we code it all up into a computer so that a soldier can come in and, you know, he needs to fix something. Okay, type it in a computer and the computer says, here's what you should do to fix it. That's kind of what we thought AI was back then. What we haven't realized, or we're just now realizing, is that since then, our AI systems have become more commonplace. Back in the 80s and 90s, I call it the winter of AI. AI was just really getting started because computer technology was so sophisticated. It could handle millions of pieces of data better than it could you know, back in the 60s and 70s. And that's what it's all about. So it started out, and we, it's just, we were just programming a computer program to do one task, maybe a task at Walmart, maybe a task at Amazon, maybe a task in the military, but just one task. The AI system could help you maintain the tank. But it he couldn't help you figure out what to order for supper. You understand? It's right. Just, it, was only, it was very specific. Now, let's move ahead a little bit. Today, you're involved in AI right now. In fact, how we're talking to each other is controlled by artificial intelligence software in your laptop computer. When you go, you know, you see these advertisements on TV where people are going, you know, they're getting ready to leave home and they say, some name, Adele, you know, secure the house. You know, I'll be back at 8 o'clock. And the system is locked and locked and everything is light to come on until you come back home and you open the door and say, hey, Adele, I'm here, and it unlocks you. You do anything else. Your driver's license has AI software linked to it. Uh, we are living in a new age of social structure now of how to think. We've got AI systems helping us think what to do. I mean, when's the last time you picked up your map to go visit someone? You want to drive, say you want to drive and come visit me. 
you would have you and, and 30 years ago or 20 years ago you would pick up a, a nice map that's you right. got from gas station and say okay here's where Oliver lives I'm going to drive down this road and this road and now you just turn on your iPhone and say I want to go where Oliver lives and it tells you get on here turn right turn right that's artificial intelligence you're not thinking anymore and and it gets kind of funny because I have a grandson <laughs> who was who was using his AI system years ago in college to come visit me uh, from Norfolk, Virginia. We live in Richmond. And I know how to get here, and he used to, but he was going to use the AI system, and he plugged in the wrong no number or data on my house, and he was riding all around the back roads of Richmond, Virginia, <laughs> for an hour and a half, and I and he said, he said, just turn it off, hit 95, and take the next exit. And he's like, no, i got to use the computer. It's thinking for us. Think about that. That's kind of what's happened since 1985 from the winter of AI. And that was imp imp impacting the supply chain. Back then, we had AI systems in a warehouse. Mm. We had that would do just that warehouse. We had supply chains. The, the, you know where the product is being made in China and the AI system on how to make it. But the connections back in 85 between where it is in China and your warehouse here at Amazon or Walmart wasn't connected. Today, it's connected. Today, if you need a supply chain item, a small item, if you need a small fan or a coffee cup that says Merry Christmas on it, and you type it in the computer, it will look and search for you. Mm. You go on something like Amazon and you want to look for a book. It connects you through various AI systems in a supply chain that you can't see, but the AI system can see it. And it goes from one country to another country, from one database to another database. It is really linked today. Since 85, we are living in a new social world of thinking that's kind of being done for us. It's mm -hmm. kind of exciting and a little scary, too. Yeah, and so to me, it's, uh, you know, it, the next question I think is related. And, you know, when we start talking about AI and supply chain and what's been happening in the last, I'd say, year, you know, eight months, you know, we're start talking about, like, do you think AI has impacted any COVID-related supply chain issues in any way? And what I'm really looking for in that question is, you know, I'm looking for use cases where we think the technology may, is, may have you know, alleviated or lessened any global component shortages? Well, uh, one that comes to mind is Procter & Gamble. Mm. You remember about a year ago, you were trying to find toilet paper in a grocery store? <laughs> I do. You yes. couldn't find it because you would see women and men with their carts full of toilet paper going outside of their car. Well, Procter & Gamble didn't understand this, and they have used artificial intelligence supply chain connections to find better ways, to, uh, faster products to be made. Procter & Gamble was leading the charge in using the AI software they had to find where the supply chain was. Unfortunately, the pandemic, this COVID-19, was impacting the tree company. You know, the, the companies where you've got loggers going out there and men and women cutting down trees, mm. you see them on TV, they're putting on barges. Well, those trees go into a organization, a, a place where they turn that tree into paper, into toilet paper. Well, they were shut down. Mm. We lost all the loggers. Almost all the loggers stopped. So all of a sudden, Procter & Gamble, who has a supply chain with a paper manufacturer, 
they said, uh, we don't have the paper coming. And you may have noticed how they had to redesign um, toilet paper instead of being two or three ply. <laughs> it's single ply. Okay. And they had to do a lot of supply chain scrambling. But AI has been used a great deal to track data uh, in this. And the use cases, you know, it, it's really about tracking data. And Procter & Gamble and uh, Walmart and Amazon are really the leaders in using robots and AI. In fact, uh, I think Amazon has one human to five, four or five robots wow. working in their store. Yes. Uh, wow. They're not replacing them all, but we are in a, um, you know, we used to have, I'd say in the 85 timeframe, we still had human to human connections and doing business. You and I would talk in a, in a warehouse. We would talk on the phone in supply chain. I'd pick up a phone and call somebody in China. I want this product made. Now, I don't have to pick up the phone. The AI system picks up the phone. The AI system looks at the inventory data on the shelf. It's gotten to a certain point. The AI system places an AI call to another AI system in China, and it says, we need another order. Put it on the next shipment, and it comes. The human-to-human -human connection is being replaced by human-computer connection and what I just mentioned, computer-to-computer -computer connection. The AI systems are talking to other AI systems now. The humans are still there, but it, it's most interesting. But Procter & Gamble was one of the neat ones uh, to do that. I really, really enjoyed looking at their errors and trying to understand how to make things work. They were very successful, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. And uh, I do remember uh, standing in line for hours. Uh, and I'm glad that's over with, as you can imagine. And so, you know, as a manufacturer, uh, and, you know, there's a lot of companies out there that have global operations. You know, in the 21st century, you know, we have access to other technologies like track and trace technology, right? Like GPS, RFID, you know, barring QR codes. So how can, in your opinion, AI use these other platforms to support, you know, global product delivery, returns, recalls, stuff like that? Well, it's most interesting. Um, by the way, I did publish a book, RFID Metrics, back in the early days when RFID, I was at MIT uh, at a conference. Oh, wow. And, working, and I was working, and I was sitting next to a young man who runs an RFID magazine, and we were listening to Walmart and Amazon, uh, vice presidents and executives on RFID and barcodes and, um, and then GPS and, and, you know, things that are tracking data they want to. And, uh, and I got excited about it. And he said, why don't you write an article about it? So I did. And that turned into a book on RFID technology wow. and barcodes. They're still being used today. And AI is being used to track this. Now, the AI system is really what's leading the charge to connect with these other global product deliveries, these returns and recalls. The AI system is built there. The AI system is replacing a lot of humans who used to, well, not totally humans, who used to be the, the analyst, the, the logistics expert, supply chain manager, who would say, okay, we're short on this. We need a new delivery. We need to return this. Or these recalls are coming in. And we had a lot of recalls. Uh, this last uh, 19 months for the pandemic. And the humans got flooded with it uh, and weren't sure how to handle all these recalls. And they helped it be done, that was done really uh, improved by AI. 
AI systems were built, oh gosh, the last year, more AI systems in warehouses and supply chains for delivery and recalls and how to handle it. AI has led the track and trace uh, of all of these products. The track and the, the products didn't develop anything. The people doing it didn't develop. They went outside and called a university or called a company that's making these systems to help track that data. So AI has really been the, the global leader uh, in doing all this. It's really exciting. Yeah, just having visibility through your supply chain is huge, of course. And, you know, to me, just looking at these other technologies, I mean, QR codes is an example, and you mentioned it, has been around for, you know, close to 15 years. I remember first using the QR code, you know, as a test, uh, you know, and I think it was, you know, a wireless show uh, so many years ago. And it's great to see that these technologies are actually improved and being used, you know, during the last year and a half. So let me ask you, uh, uh, it's actually a short question compared to some of the other, you know, uh, questions I've been asking, like almost like textbooks, but, you know, so what branch of the military do you feel is best using AI right now to manage logistics? Oh, I would say Air Force. Uh, the reason I'd say, I mean, the military is using it, the Army's using it. I've, I've seen it for the last 20, some 30 years, helping in the Army with the data management for medical systems, but I'd say the Air Force. They've got something called R2, A-R-T-U, and it uh, basically, uh, it's an aircraft, okay? It's an aircraft that flies all by itself, and it knows how to fly and find uh, the enemy, and, uh, and they've come to a point, and th here's the key thing, it's weapon systems. I'd say weapon mm. systems in Air Force, and they've got R2, which will fly out, a human pushes the button and says launch, and it goes out. It goes into the enemy territory. The human's not looking through a camera to say, okay, turn right, turn left, or drop your bomb right here, or you see this car hit, driving down the road, go shoot at it and kill who's ever in charge in, in that car. No. They have an ability to turn the AI system on to say, you do the thinking. You send the weapon, mm. so they're sending a weapon system out that can actually go beyond just a human computer connection is really computer-computer connection, you might say. Uh, having the AI system do the actual thinking is one of the big discussion issues underway mm. right now. Uh, there's a big discussion in the, in the Air Force about how much how much auto autonomy do we give this artificial intelligence weapon system? Do we tell it to go out and do this thing? The thing is, China and Russia are doing the same thing. Now, I won't say they're the Air Force is the best, but they're using AI in terms of helping to develop weapon systems too. So we may in the future see AI system fighting an AI system. And what's going to be interesting and was and the question is really being raised right now i think uh, henry kissinger was raising it wow uh, this year he wrote a book about it and uh on, on how ai is is doing things differently and, and and the big issue is when do we or how much do we give autonomy to an artificial intelligence system i mean there's one thing to say in a warehouse oh the AI system, you track the, the, the inventory you look at the shelves when the shelves get a certain level go buy some more stuff. And he sends orders in automatically. One AI system talking to a supply chain AI system or talking to several hundred AI systems at the same time. Something a human can't do. You can't make 100 phone calls at one time, but the AI system can. So I can see where the weapon systems 
are in a point now of discussions with our politicians, our government leaders, our military leaders. How much autonomy do we give that weapon system that we launch as a human, and it's in the sky and it's riding around looking at a target? Um, they probably won't tell you how much is being done by the computer right now. That would probably be some top secret thing um, or a political thing. But um, it's there. It's capable. AI systems are capable of running the show. And the show may be a warehouse. It may be reordering uh, stuff on the shelves at a grocery store. But uh, it's, I'd say the Air Force is a leader in, in thinking about this technology. Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point. I mean, different use cases. One is supply chain, right, and logistics. The other one is, you know, you know, lighting up a weapon system with this artificial intelligence. And, uh, you know, it just it has to be given more thought, I think, uh, and not just, um, you know, from a, a, a business person like us. Uh, you know, so if you had to look in your crystal ball, right, at, you know, what innovation can we expect in, you know, the military supply chain, say, in the next 10 years? Uh, okay. I it, it goes along with what I was saying. I think we would see more R2s, ARTUs, more mm. independent flying weapon systems in the military. Um, you will see them on the ground. I can imagine there would be you know tanks that are driving. We have cars. I mean, I just heard the news this morning that uh, Walmart's got a self-driving truck to deliver goods to your home. Okay, so be careful. A Walmart truck's going to drive up and drop some things off or go from one Walmart warehouse to another. Uh, the military is doing that, and I do believe they'll have more AI systems making more human decisions for tanks that are on the ground. I mean, why go, if you've got a tank that can be out there run by artificial intelligence, basically robot, we call it robots, but it's AI, uh, then you, you wanna not hurt some human. You know, you want your soldier to be alive to think and say, okay, here's how the strategy needs to be developed. Here's the tactics to be developed. But there is that issue of, will the AI system be able to develop a new tactic um, that we haven't thought of? Now, I'll mention that because uh, in uh, Henry Kissinger's book, I was shocked. I mean, I just read it a couple of weeks ago. I was shocked that there was a AI. There was a chess maker, a chess chess expert in the country, the the biggest chess maker uh, uh, person, and he he was beat by an AI system. They trained the AI system to study chess. Didn't know anything about it. Gave it no rules. The chess game, the man won, uh, lost, and the AI system won by developing new rules of operations, new rules of movement, that. No chess maker in two or three hundred years had ever thought of. You never would move the queen this way, or the, or you know the king this way, or the rook this way, or the pawn this way. You never give up this person. You know why yeah. would you give up your queen? The thing is, the AI system learned a different way of thinking that you and I don't know in terms of playing chess, and that was really an eye-opening event that. We're going to have AI systems in the future that will, I won't say think for us, but they will be able to see different ways of a military operations, for example, that we might not think about. We have certain strategies and tactics to line up the tanks and the Air Force, its missiles and everything, and the, and the Navy ships. You know, we have the submarines. We have a certain way of doing things based on hundreds of years of experience and recent experience. 
But the AI system may say, let's do this combat mission differently. And the thing is, do you let it or you, by itself, or do you say, okay, tell me what to do and we'll think about it. It's going to be exciting, I'd say the next five or 10 years, with the military trying to understand how much do we give over to control of a system. Yeah, and I think there's some, like we were saying before, there's probably some ethics that have to be discussed, whether you're turning over a weapon system just to be completely independent of human thought. Um, and I also, just going back to your other comment about, uh, I remember, I think that chess game, I think it was uh, the IBM Watson system that actually beat that uh, chess player. That was pretty impressive, if I remember back in the day. So let me ask you uh, uh, one other question, and it's really to, to you, you know, what would you want our listeners or even a prospective student of yours to remember from this discussion? And we've talked a lot about a lot of things. Well... The one thing that's becoming more apparent since 1985, now in 85, we started building more and more AI systems. And like I've mentioned so far, we're surrounded by AI systems and they're solving problems for us. And we're letting them, they drive our car for us. You take your hands off the steering wheel and you take a nap and it drives you somewhere. <laughs> you want something ordered and it comes automatically. You know, I order things online. I order my vitamins online. And the computer system sends it to me without me ordering now. It knows when I give, give, give out. And so the knock on the door is, there's your new order. Um, but what I see that's happening now, and they need to think about, AI systems are biased. Now, th let that sink in. All AI systems are biased. I want to say it again. 100% of every AI system you can give to me, whether it's a supply chain AI system in a warehouse or whether it's self-driving a car, it is biased in doing certain actions. A lot of those actions are developed by humans. And a lot of humans go and put in together ideas and what action you take from this point to another. But they are biased. And so there's this ethics. You mentioned the word. I'm glad you did. The ethics issue is in discussion right now in Washington, D.C. The politicians who are overseeing the development of AI systems for the military, for the government, and for civilian use and state use, wherever, there is an ethics issue. I mean, we talk about AI systems teaching. I just completed a research um, last year with uh, four other professors at our university asking uh, nearly 200 students, would you trust an AI system to teach my class? And they all came back, basically, the majority came back and said, yeah, it'd be okay, let an AI system teach. <laughs> the thing is, I've gone through, like you said, I drove a truck, I had a truck company, I had 30 years experience before that teaching. I've got a PhD, all right? It's hard to get a PhD. And I had to learn to teach and how to deal with people and how to talk. And an AI system doesn't have those emotions, doesn't have that experience, but they do such, AI system does such a good job of presenting the data. So that's the thing to look at, the ethics of using AI in a warehouse or to help a teacher or to help you conduct an interview. 
how much of ethics is there that we need to talk about? It's going to be a big deal. And watch the government over the next, I'd say, five years or so talk about ethics and talk about bias. Not just here's, a, here's an AI system that does this job or con connects to another system, you know, and you're going to learn another term this year coming out. There's artificial intelligence, AI. There's also artificial general intelligence, A-G-I. That's very important to know because A-G-I means I've got this computer that will help solve all my problems. That's where we've been trying to go since robots were, when AI was first invented in 1943. Not AI, computers. Computers were first formed in 1943 during World War II. And the question came up then, is this machine intelligence better and smarter than us? Well, we might have AGI, artificial general intelligence, in some system that can help you with cooking a cake or help you drive to the store. It might be a general intelligence machine. Watch that coming out. People are, be, are going to start using that, but it goes back to that word you said, ethics, and how biased is that system. So ethics is big time. Watch out for that. Yeah, Oliver, I think you're hitting it right on the head. And, you know, when we start talking about, in this case, coding bias and especially other technologies, not just, you know, AI and supply chain and logistics, but also things like AI and facial recognition, right? And, uh, and what's happening there, both in the consumer and enterprise uh, side. I think that's something that any regulator has to look at uh, and any business has to look at and how that technology is applied. But, you know, I'm glad you, you said that. Uh, you know, it seems like you're just on the forefront of teaching, you know, the pros and cons of how people use certain technology. Um, so, you know, we're almost at the end of our time. Uh, I do have, uh, it's one of my favorite questions. Uh, in your case, you know, what do you love about being a professor? I think being a professor is an exciting way to learn what's going on in the world this morning, today, yesterday, and in the future. I, as a professor, I always love dealing with my students, and most of them are military, but they're civilians, and understanding how they want their career change. So I'm doing two things. One, I'm helping them change their career. I'm helping them step outside their civilian job to the next job. I'm helping a truck driver become a manager in his next career. I'm helping a civilian do that. Or I'm helping a military logistics person leave the military and take a civilian job and know the difference. So I'm teaching them how to improve their life. But the other aspect, as I, as I started to mention, it's the knowledge. Oh, my goodness. I read so much. You know, and I read the news. I read four newspapers every morning. Yes, I do. Wow. They come to the house. I got wow. a lot of paper. I, I'm an old-fashioned guy. I like paper, okay? And I read the newspaper, and I underline what's happening, and I bring it into my classroom, and it gives me ideas on, I need to write this as an article and see if some students would like to talk about this. And I bring it into my classroom. So it's all combined together. It's just it's just a fun life. Let me tell you, this is my, uh, I think it's my fourth career. Wow. <laughs> wow. But it, and it all adds together from my day one when I started out at Defense Intelligence Agency as an analyst 
working on a computer in the, uh, back in the old days. Uh, I developed one of the first AI artificial intelligence, we didn't call it, systems back then. Uh, I developed a plotter that could actually draw circles and lines and draw maps of where the Soviet missile sites were. Mm. I'll tell that. Okay. That was one of the first. Yeah. I did that. We didn't call it AI. We just called it computer stuff. But it's been happening all since then. And uh, it's most exciting to see what we can learn as a professor. Professor is just one of the coolest jobs around. And I would encourage you, anyone, you get a chance to teach a college class or high school. And I have taught a high school class locally here. And teaching 11th and 12th graders um, about what's going on in the world, especially logistics, and that's what I teach, is most exciting to see how they see the world, too. It's very exciting to see how they see AI. By the way, they, the people in their, say, 25 and younger, they are being raised with AI system helping them make decisions more so than Absolutely. myself. I turn Absolutely. my computer off and make a decision. I've got a paper map in my Jeep, and I leave it there <laughs> just to look at, and I laugh at it. It's there. Although I will pick up my iPhone and type in where my granddaughter's office is and say, take me to Ashley's place. And it will. And I will listen to it while laughing at that paper map. <laughs> so teaching is a fun profession. Everybody go out there and be a professor. You're a good man, Oliver, and I've really enjoyed having you on the show. It's uh, really been a great perspective, and I, you know, I want to thank you for being on the show. That's the most important thing. Well, thank you very much for um, talking to me today. The, the subject that you raised is, is really front-page news, front-page thinking in everybody's head, whether they know it or not. What you brought to our attention today with this interview is just really exciting. And thank you very much for, for bringing this to our attention to discuss. You're a good man, Oliver. And to our listeners, if you enjoyed the podcast, if you didn't enjoy the podcast or have ideas to make us better, visit our feed on iTunes to rate, review, or subscribe. Or if you're listening on Spotify, be sure to hit follow. We want your feedback. Well, that's it for us on another episode of The Big Rethink. Until next time, I'm Barry Ross. Barry Ross.